All right, folks, welcome to season two of the Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. Welcome to 2023. Good afternoon, Lisa Flicker. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Happy we New did, Year. Happy New Year. We just had an amazing guest who you were on a, pan, a BizNow panel with at the uh, fourth quarter of 2022. Her name is Monique Jefferson. She's the chief people officer at the Community Preservation Corp. How did you, did you guys sit next to each other on the panel? We did sit next to each other on the panel. And as you can imagine, just from listening to her talk and knowing me, we were just before you, the panel, after the panel, a lot Did you to forget that you were on a panel and just were chit-chatting? <laughs> <laughs> you guys have a lot of the yes, same, we similar passion. Our, no. we, we had a very similar passion. And the, the funny part was, as you alluded to in the podcast, the po- the panel kept going over and over and Larry Silverstein was speaking right after us. And finally, they like literally just escorted us off as they were bringing him in. So and everyone booed because they wanted to hear more. Yeah, I wish. But no, it was great. <laughs> awesome. Well, everyone, it's a great podcast. Thank you for continuing to follow us and uh, and join us on this journey here. Uh, as always, please feel free to share the podcast. Uh, tell your friends about it. It always, it really, really helps if you like the podcast and write, uh, rate and review it. That just gives us more exposure. So um, really appreciate everyone's uh, loyalty with us and please continue to listen and feel free to shoot us some emails if you have any suggestions of how we can improve the podcast, any guests that you'd like to hear from and uh, have a great 2023. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Monique Jefferson, how are you today? I am good, thank you. What's happening? How's Brooklyn? It's lovely. Today, um, it's not raining. We have had unseasonably warm weather uh, in the 40s and 50s, which we're used to 20s and 30s this time of year. So it's been quite nice. And I had a lovely holiday. Of course, it goes too fast and you're never able to take enough time off. But uh, but it was local. Were you local? I was. I actually host because my um, my spouse, my husband, his birthday is actually on Christmas Day. Whoa! And so Aww. everyone comes to us so that they can help celebrate. You know, the the, the day of his birth. So, oh, I'm sure. That, yeah, I'm sure they're coming over to celebrate the day of his birth. Right. My be- <laughs> my best saying, friend like- my best friend was born on the 24th, and my father is born on the 26th. So okay, I know the so. I, I know the pain. Yes. When when people come to our house, though, they know. The first thing they say is happy birthday. And then they say Merry Christmas. <laughs> I almost feel like I'd want to change my birthday if it was on Christmas because you don't really get like your own full special time. I know. But I'm sure you I make it special. A lot of people have issues. <laughs> me and his mother and his kids, like we, we make a point to make sure that he feels special. So we make sure that he gets a separate birthday gift wrapped in birthday paper and then, you know, a, hot, a, a Christmas gift in the Christmas paper. So little things like that, you know, I'm very sensitive to. So because I want to make sure that he feels special. So since he well, has that's to, very nice to have you. you. <laughs> that's very nice. Tell him you. we said he's lucky to have you. <laughs> so you are the at the Community Preservation Corporation, correct? Yes. Um, yes. I've been there for five months. Five months. You're a newbie. Five months. 
And you're the, the SVP it, it chief. It feels like five officer. days, but sometimes because I'm, you know, it's there's a lot going on, particularly in this market, um, particularly in the housing market, and with um, in this environment, economic environment, with interest rates rising and the impact that that's having on our ability to do lending. So mm. it's a very exciting time. It's a very challenging time, um, but it presents always presents opportunities to learn and grow. So you're, you're the this, chief um, people housing, officer, right? Yes, I am the chief people officer. That is and you correct. And you were, Lisa and you, you and Lisa were on a panel together. That's how you, you both met, right? At, at business yes, and I roped her into this. I was like, you speak so beautifully. I have another <laughs> one for you. Let's go. <laughs> well, tell me about, um, can you tell us about the Community Preservation Corp and then kind of what your role is there? Yes, absolutely. So Community Preservation Corporation is a CDFI which is a community development financial institution. That's what that stands for. So because we are a CDFI, technically we are a nonprofit, even though we are a financial lending institution. And we um, lend money primarily and and also um, raise and invest capital primarily in the affordable housing space. Because I'm sure as most people can... um, understand and appreciate that not only in the United States, but particularly in New York City, there is an affordable housing crisis. And so the work that we do is making sure that the communities that we serve within New York City, across New York State and across the country, that we're trying to bring, um, make investments and bring capital and money to lend and and fund deals so that we can build um, affordable housing properties. And And so it's across the country? Yes, we we are across the country, but our primary primary footprint is across New York State. Gotcha. And then it's you invest equity and debt. So we raise capital, we invest equity. Yes, and we also do the debt through the lending. That is correct. So if I'm doing an affordable housing deal, like it, a lot of people know, it's a very complicated capital stack. Part of that capital could be some some debt or equity from from you CPC. guys yes like our sweet spot of course you know there's larger banking institutions but we are uniquely positioned and can really own the space in which we play in um so we focus on deals within a certain range um solely targeted at the affordable housing market how big is the organization we're at about 100 and, in terms of people we're about 170 170 people. And last fiscal year was one of our biggest, most successful years in that we um, just hit over $1 billion in lending. So, oh, wow. Where does that, where does that money come from? Like where, like if you're going to a bank, I kind of understand where that like comes from. Where does this billion dollars, where's that coming so from? From state, you know, state, state money, working with um, HPD and the different housing authorities and, and housing um, organizations. So also other potentially other banks, partnerships with other banks, other CDFIs. What we don't do, which is unique in other nonprofits usually have some type of fundraising or develop or development arm. That's our, our model is very different. So we don't have that. So the majority of the funding is coming from state, um, federal to city, um, other CDFIs, other partnerships with CDFIs and lending institutions, capital organizations, et cetera. So you, that's, that's, that's fascinating. So, you know, like banks or, or states or 
they allocate some capital to to you guys in order to like i guess maybe well we get grants we get grants so like for example um we are one of the recipients of the climate friendly homes fund which is a grant um it's about 250 million dollars that we were awarded at, or granted i should say and it allows us um to electrify our properties and over the next four years and so that that's uh, allows us to make an investment to to ensure that our properties are environmentally you know sustainable and and also reduce um emissions and reduce our carbon footprint gotcha cool i feel like the esg push is so important and i love the fact that they are they are funding it because i see a lot of private sector folks just thinking that they can't make the economics work to try to reduce the carbon footprint and so that from a personal note i feel very happy to hear that yeah under the leadership of the president of the organization um our leader sadie McEwen. hopefully i'm saying pronouncing her last name correctly but under her leadership you know cpc has been doing this work and playing in this space long before it was sexy like mm. right like long before you heard this push around esg and in the environment and being sustainable CPC was already looking at how can we <clears throat> how can we um, support our ESG initiatives and further drive our ESG um, uh, have an ESG impact. So we were doing that long before it was like you know the 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 sexy thing or the buzzword that you're hearing um, today. But I will say from a talent perspective, one of the things that I've observed and I noticed is that um, this the early career or the younger generation in the workforce, these are the types of issues that are very important to them versus like baby boomers or Gen X. Not that we don't care about the environment, but it's not as much of a, a focus. It hasn't, I don't see it as much of a focus as I do with um, yeah. the Gen, particularly within with um, Gen Z. Like it is, it's very intentional and it's very conscious in that they are holding employers accountable and companies accountable in terms of where they work when they're in the market and looking for where they want to work. That is one of in their, you know, employee value proposition. That is one of their within their top five, I'm sure, is what is the contribution and the impact that that organization is having on the community? Um, where do they stand on issues that are important to us, whether it's around the environment or whatever, whether it's around social justice issues, diversity, equity, inclusion. So I'm just finding that this particular um, early career um, and younger workforce, these Gen Zs, they, they are really driving a lot of what you're seeing um, occurring with organizations. Well, part of that is they learn it in school. We didn't learn it in school, but I sometimes I'll study with my 16 year old and I look at what he's learning and I feel like, of course they care about it because they are actually learning what the impact is of not caring about it. And I feel like my generation, we have the luxury that we didn't learn about it. So we could try to put it out of our heads. Yeah. My son's no, 12, my son's 12 and he's like, yeah, he's all about, they're all about all that stuff, which is great. If I mean, I, all I remember from when we were, I'm, I'm a Gen X. So all I remember from when I was in school was, you know, there was a push around recycling. So, you know, right, I remember, yeah. you know, go home and look at, you know, are you using cans? Are you using plastic, you know, paper bags? Are you actually recycling? Are you mixing your trash together? Like those, that was the extent of what I remember, um, you know, being mentioned or even discussed at school. So it's very different now. 
And would like tell me how your your background, like what did you you've been there six months? Did you have did you did you know affordable housing before you got there? Did you like what? what how did, no. So um, one of the things that I pride myself on is that I'm somewhat industry agnostic, mm. and so the majority of my career has been in financial or professional services types of organizations. Um, but I've, I've had roles at with, the, with um, pharmaceutical company. Prior to joining CPC, I was at a public media organization. And so given the work that I do within human capital and within the HR function, um, a lot of what we do, processes, programs, and the skill sets that's required for the different areas of HR, whether you're, gen- whether you're going to be a business partner or a generalist, whether you look at benefits, total rewards, compensation, recruitment, employee relations, there's so many different components that fall under the broader term of HR or human capital. And But because um, you're really talking about an organization's most precious resource, right? Their talent. It's the most yeah, important sure. thing that's not on the balance sheet, right? It's their most important resource or asset, right? Um, but because it's really boils down to people, that is kind of transcends industries and the skills that are required are transferable. And so while it is helpful and good to maybe go deep and have a subject matter expertise within a particular industry sector, it's not something that's necessary or required to thrive and be successful. And so I've been fortunate throughout my career that I've while the bulk of my career has been in financial and professional services, I've had these other opportunities in other industry sectors to do the same type of work because it applies across the board, regardless of the industry. So no, I did not have any prior experience in real estate or housing, Mm. um, but because we are a lending institution, that's where it's very, that's where the familiarity comes into play. That's where it's transferable. And it was a smooth transition given my prior experience working for um, organizations uh, such as Merrill Lynch. So. And what, uh, like we don't, we haven't interviewed many people in the HR people side of things. Like what, I mean, you're, you're building the organization. I mean, hopefully sometimes you work with folks like us as, you know, executive search professionals, but like what, what do you, what is the most difficult aspect of the recruiting building, you know, the recruit, uh, recruiting people for the, for an organization. What is your biggest so headache? Would, yeah, no. So and that has changed and evolved over time. I would say right now in the, in the current, like within the past, like I'd say 18 to 24 months, you know, just in case we haven't, we've forgotten, we're still kind of in a pandemic, <laughs> although we are trying to emerge and exit out of it. And so I think that has had a significant impact on recruitment in terms of how people recruit, where they go to recruit, and the skills that they're recruiting for. So that has probably been, I don't want to say pain point, but I would say that's probably been the biggest challenge. And so if you are an organization where traditionally or historically, you kind of looked for talent within your, you know, geographic location, you know, given that we just came out of the pandemic, we spent two years working remotely, working from home. What impact does that have on your recruitment strategy? Does that mean that you can cast a wider net and be, it doesn't matter what location 
the person is based at. What's more important is the skills and the competencies that you are recruiting for. And you just need to go to whatever market or whatever location those skills and competencies exist. They don't necessarily have to be in, you know, New York City or um, Philadelphia or DC or whatever your, you know, whatever major city you're you're based in. And so, you know, historically back in the day, I would say, you know, if you were going to hire someone that wasn't in your geographic location, then you'd have to talk about relocation, you know, we can give a moving allowance, et cetera. Um, but now, you know, this pandemic and some organizations were doing this pre-pandemic, but what the pandemic has done is escalate, you know, accelerated that. So that's basically has changed the game. So what's important is, um, you know, really identifying where the critical skills and competencies are that you need for that particular role and then going to where the, the talent exists versus staying within your geographic area and doing the traditional approach to uh, to recruiting, which was, okay, I want them to, you know, live in New York, go to these schools, um, you know, be from this particular industry. It's like, I don't care what industry you're from. Can you think critically? Do you have good communication skills? Have you, you know, transacted a deal? Or if you're in technology, do you, what certifications do you have? Even if you don't have a master's or undergraduate degree, we're moving more and more away from that. And the focus has been more on experiences and skills versus the traditional, you know, education and degrees and where you're located at. And you guys are okay with that? You guys are, are, are doing remote work? So CPC is a hybrid work environment. We recognize the importance of flexibility. Right. Um, or, or, what you know, see, people say hybrid work, but it really boils down to flexibility. And so we have chosen to be a hybrid uh, work environment. And what that means, the way we define that at CPC is that we want our employees to come into the office on a weekly basis, two to three days a week. And the reason why um, we chose hybrid is while, yes, we want to provide employees with flexibility and meet, you know, our workforce where they're at. And, and give them what they need to, you know, thrive, grow, and be successful in their roles, we also recognize, listen, we're business, we're an organization, and there's something to be said about culture. And we really miss some aspects of the culture that we had pre-pandemic. We also recognize that employees want and crave a sense of uh, connection and community. So we're trying, so through hybrid, you can get the best of both worlds. You can be, you know, provide flexibility. People can work from anywhere, whether that's from their home or from some, from some other remote location part of the time. But then also when they're craving that, you know, water cooler and the virtual aspects just won't do, you can only do so much through a screen, right? right. Remotely. But when people crave that connection, they want to see you in real life. <laughs> you know, they want that sense of community that they had pre-pandemic. Well, guess what? You can come on in too. And for those that want to come in more than three days a week, that's okay too. Mm -hmm. We welcome that as well because we know not everybody is um, cut out or meant to, you know, be home or or has a, a partner or a spouse that wants them at home. <laughs> so <laughs> and that's okay. Some people are more productive and do the better work coming in. Some people are, are the opposite; they do better at home because there's less distractions. But and what we're trying to do is a blend and be flexible and get the best of both worlds. And so if you hire somebody outside of the market, um, how, 
they, I guess they can't come in regularly because the office isn't close enough. But do you try to get them into the office periodically just to feel that sense of community? So for us, we do have some jobs in our organization, particularly within our loan servicing organization, that are based in other locations. So like we might have people based in Houston. We have in our within our loan servicing organization or in our field, our field management as well. We have people that are based in multiple, you know, uh, cities and locations across the country. And so those individuals, they work primarily either in the field or from their home office, but they also are given the opportunity to come to headquarters and come to our central office maybe every six to eight weeks so that, you know, they're meeting their colleagues, they're building relationships, and they have that as well. So we do have some jobs in our organization that are primarily remote remote workers or remote positions. And that's also given the nature of the job. Like I always say, I always caution and recommend that when they're trying to decide, when organizations are trying to decide whether, you know, we're going to force everybody to come back, are we going to do hybrid or or we want to be a remote first organization? I know a number of technology or, you know, companies are remote first, right? Regardless of which one of those work arrangements you're trying to um, implement or you're trying to decide who does what, always focus on the nature of the job. And so there are some jobs that lend themselves to be remote, whether that's in the IT organization or whether that's, um, you know, customer service jobs, any type of um, operations or processing type of roles. They are set up in a way where they can be done remotely. They don't necessarily have to be done on site, you know, at a particular location. And by doing that too, you also open up your candidate pool because you now you're, you can cast a wider net when you're looking for talent versus being confined <clears throat> to a particular um, location. So we do have some jobs in our organization that are remote, but the majority of our positions, at least over 60% of our positions in our organization are based out of the you know New York City metro area. They're based there and they work out of our New York City office. And do you find it rewarding to work for, you know, you work for a lot of different organizations, but I mean, this is, you know, there's a different kind. I, oh, actually, one, I'm sure you find it rewarding, but do you find that there's a different type of person that works at a affordable housing firm? Yes. So I will tweak that slightly to say, yes, I think there's a different type of person or a profile of an employee that works at a nonprofit. Hmm. I'll, I'll just make, make it a little bit more um, broad. Okay. Um, and, and for me, like I said, I, I've been at CPC for five months now, but for me, I feel like I, when I accepted this position and joined the organization, I, I had a little feeling of I've hit the jackpot. And the reason why I said it is because I feel like I have spoke and mentioned this before that I call it the three P's, your purpose, your passion, and your profession. And I feel like in take in my current role now with CPC, I feel like all three of those have aligned. Um, everyone that works at CPC, regardless of what their role or position is, is truly committed and has that sense of connection to our mission in terms of the work that we do in the communities that we serve within the affordable housing space. And for me personally, you know, having spent um, a part of my childhood in um, city housing and, you know, affordable housing, 
it's really important, right? That everybody has a decent place to live. And I truly believe in the work that the organization does. Even if I'm in HR, even if you're in finance or marketing, doesn't matter what you do, there is that connection and that commitment to the mission of the organization. And I think from an employee profile standpoint, you find that with most people that work at nonprofits. Most people that work at nonprofits, and not to say that they don't pay well from a total reward standpoint, it's not just about pay, but other benefits and rewards that they offer. But generally speaking, I got to tell you, most people are not at a nonprofit because they're getting paid gobs of money in salary, right? <laughs> so it's usually because there's some type of connection and commitment to the mission of that organization. So I was previously at public media, even though it was a media company and we competed competed with for-profit organizations, it was public media, which meant that it was a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And so, um, but again, the creative talent that worked at that organization was deeply committed to the mission of New York Public Radio and and really making sure that we are bringing local news and local journalism and and bringing factual information to the New York City community, right? I love public um, radio, by Telling the way. stories, telling stories of the communities, whether that's documentaries or, you know, it was a different kind of news. People don't listen, you know, they people who listen to WNYC are mostly local people and they're listening to it for a very specific reason in terms of the news that they consume and the type of news that they're getting. It's the same thing, you know, it's the same thing with, you know, CPC and that connection um, to the mission and the work that we do. So I feel like all three of those have aligned. You know, I love what I do. I've been doing HR now for over 20 years. Um, You know, some days are better than others, but generally speaking, I'm so happy that I made a career change you know, a few years um, after I had completed undergrad, I was an accounting major. I worked at a, a large public accounting firm. Oh. And after doing that for a few years, I realized I didn't want to be a CPA. And I literally fell backwards into this HR work. And I've been doing it ever since. And I absolutely love it. That's a Lisa so Flicker story. That's right. We have that in common. I don't think I, I knew that before this. That was, yeah. um, people always say, and I'm sure they said it to you too, how could you have thought you would want to be an accountant because you're such an extrovert. But I feel like accounting is such a great foundation for anything that you want to do. So I don't know. But it's that financial base, right? Particularly if you're going to go into what I call like a support or corporate function type of role, like marketing, you know, um, HR, IT, it's very important to at least have a basic understanding of how your organization makes money and basic financials, being able to just read and understand a balance sheet and an income statement. And really, I, you would be amazed at how many young people I meet that don't understand, okay, so how does your company make money? Right. Really? Right. And so that's what I mean by, listen, not everybody likes math and all. People, I remember when I was in county, they say, oh, you like numbers and you like math. I was like, actually, no, I don't. Right. <laughs> but what I like about being an auditor was the engagement team, going to the on the different client engagements and on the audits, being able to um, interact and build relationships with the CFO and the controller and the head of FP&A and talking to them about their challenges as it pertains to the audit, right? 
it was that client interacting and client engagement that I really enjoyed, which is I get to still do that with HR. So I, I really identified what are the aspects of the work that I enjoy, what's transferable. And what I realized is that it fell under this umbrella called HR. And so my first HR job, when I made the transition, which w- was with a competitor firm. So I started off at Ernst & Young mm. and then I went over. Coopers and Library, which is now PricewaterhouseCoopers, which was a competitor. Um, but one of the things that they told me when they hired me was that they said, oh, we don't care if you don't know HR. We can teach you that. The reason why we're interested in bringing you on board is because you understand our business, right? right. I understand what an auditor does. I understand the job, the role. Same thing when I went to um, the pharmaceutical company. I was like, okay, I know nothing about what a pharmaceutical sales rep does. So the first thing I did was I went on ride-alongs with the reps. I shadowed them. Oh, and wow, I said, yeah. what? Because I was going to be a recruiter. And I'm like, okay, if I'm going to go out and recruit sales reps, I got to understand what I'm looking for. And I got a list of who the top rec- uh, um, um, farmer sales reps were in my territory. I had the Southeast region, mm. who the top reps were. And I did ride-alongs and I shadowed them. And I watched them when they engaged with the doctors. I said, okay, so what is it that you do? How do you get the doctor to write your script? You know, and lots I, of I dinners, smooth schmoozing, <laughs> lots of lunches and dinners. But there's there's a little bit more to it than that. But <laughs> you know, I've used that to build my you know profile so that when I went out to the market to start hiring for um, reps, I kind of knew what to to look for. That's and awesome. so, you know, really understanding the numbers, the finances, the business, just on a fundamental level, will help you no matter what functional area or role you go into. You should be, and I think that's uh, great advice. I know, right? I was thinking the same. <laughs> I think that's great advice to anybody listening, which is if you're if you're starting out in a career or kind of getting into it, looking at what the top people do and trying to kind of take that and make it your own is so valuable. So I'm sure that's led to a big part of your success. And I'm imagining that in your role, you also serve partially as a therapist. So being able to kind of understand what each of those people, what their challenges are, and then be able to advise around that. Um, that yes, that, I do. That that's be an interesting part. Yeah, no, no, no. That's, I, yes, that is part of the role. Counselor, more so than therapist, but yes. Okay. Counsel, <laughs> counsel, providing counsel to employees and managers, and also a lot of coaching. That is definitely a big component of the role. But what I always like to tell um, employees, particularly, um, early career employees, because they have this perception. And this is one of the things I, the dark side, or one of the the things I don't like about human resources is unfortunately, because of people's prior experiences, Mm. some of them have a very negative perception of HR. They don't trust HR. They see HR as the police. Or there are some leaders that see HR as a very traditional compliance type of function, right? Like you just hire and fire people and you just do payroll, right? Or things like, you know, very compliance driven or you just making sure that we are are compliant and we're meeting all the, you know, employment laws and rules, et cetera. But there's a lot more to HR than that. And it also depends on what area of HR that you're in. But because of whatever experience someone has had, they have this negative um, perception. So when something is wrong and they really do need help, sometimes they don't come to HR when we are the best 
suited or the position, we're the best people to help and support that employee through whatever their, um, their issues are, right? And so what I tell people is like, no, 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 I'm not on the employee side and I'm not on manager's side either. Mm. I'm Switzerland. You're I'm on your neutral. side. Right. Right. And I, <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out and navigate what the best answer is for both the employee and for the company to minimize risk, you know, yes, for the organization, but also to try to minimize risk for the employee as well. If I think that they're making a, a decision that may not be in their best interest in the long run. So I try to stay in that space. It's not easy. It's, it's very challenging, particularly when you have employees that may have had negative experiences or have a very strong view or perception that you're out to get me, you're on the manager's side, or, you know, you don't have my best interest in mind, you know, et cetera. So. And so you said you grew up, you, you spent some time growing up in public housing or city housing. I, I, earlier on in my um, childhood, we lived in um, public housing in uh, near, in Brooklyn, actually in Brooklyn. Um, uh, how old was I? Six years old, six years Funny old. So for one year, um, my family was going through a transition. And so we stayed, we went and stayed with my grandmother. And so we lived, we lived in um, the housing for one year. And then we were able to um, move back out to Long Island, which is where I grew up. It's funny that you're just kind of, it's come full circle. Yes. It's <laughs> pretty cool. Yes, it has. You said the weather's, what's the right word I'm looking for? You said the weather is unusually warm in New York, right? Yeah, unseasonably warm. Unseasonably yes. warm. Well, are you ready for the hot seat? Sure. Oh. The Hot Seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofits, startups, and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities, reduce turnover, and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So. They outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe it doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com. K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. Yes. I think right. I do okay under pressure. All right, well, it's getting hot. I'm sure you do. Really hot. You want to start off, Elise? Sure. Um, would love to hear any recent books or podcasts or recommendations you might have for the audience. And for us, oftentimes, Chris and I then pick yeah. up on whatever it is <laughs> that know. our people recommend. <laughs> okay. Um, I'd probably say three if I can. And I'm in the middle of all of them. It's hard for me to like get through a book in one. Yeah, I have like four time. going at one time. It takes me, me about, it takes me about <laughs> a year I'll, to finish one. 
I'll suggest three that immediately come to mind. The first one is Michelle Obama, you know, my forever first lady. She's come out with a new book. I think it's The Light We Carry, I believe is hopefully I got the name right. So I would, um, about a third into that. So I would definitely recommend that. If for nothing else, it's Michelle Obama. And her and her first book was fantastic. I enjoyed it thoroughly. So I'd recommend that one. Um, the second book that I would recommend is a book by Menda Hart. Menda Hart. She's wrote a couple of books. Um, one is, um, oh goodness, The Memo. And then her most recent one, which, oh, oh goodness. Her most recent one, Oh, right. I'm, I'm just, the title is drawing a blank, but it focuses on, she, she writes a lot around women of color, particularly in the workplace oh, okay. and cool. a lot of the experiences and the challenges that we um, have to go through, particularly being women of color in senior roles in corporate America. And oh, so, that's a good one. Is it called the memo? The memo was one of them, but the one, the most okay. recent one is the one within something within I, and okay. I, I cannot believe I'm drawing a blank on, this, on the title of this book, but um, I would uh, recommend that, particularly if you are a woman of color, um, you know, rising through your career or in the C-suite, I would definitely recommend. It's called the post-it note. Um, that as well. Oh, and right then, within. Right within. Thank you. That's her most recent one, but the memo was very good as well. Um, and then the last one that I would uh, recommend is a book by Carla Harris. Also, she has written um, three books and her most recent book, <laughs> again, I'm trying to try to remember what her most recent um, book was. Hold on one second. Let me... Uh, um, Ask Mr. Google. Yes, right. exactly. Her most recent book, Lead to Win, because she's, ha she's had uh, books in the series, Expect to Win, Strategize to Win, and then her most recent one is Lead to Win. All right. So I would uh, recommend her as well. Carla Harris, um, you know, was the uh, uh, chairman, vice chairman at Morgan Stanley. Um, she's still there as well, but I think she has kind of transitioned and moved into a more um, less less of a client, um, you know, facing deal type of role. But would definitely recommend that book as well. Again particularly if you are a person of color, regardless if you're a woman or not, but if you are a person of color, she has these pearls, pearls of wisdom, negative wisdoms. And I, I had an opportunity of first being exposed and reading her first book back, um, back in 2009. Um, Strategize to Win was the first one that I read. And I mean, it'll, it'll change your life. There, in every one of her books is something that you can take away and that you can actually apply and implement um, in your career and how you navigate your career and learn from her mistakes and some and the challenges that she's been through. So those are the three that I would recommend by Michelle Obama, Carla Harris, and Minda Hart. Good okay, job. Next year when we talk, we'll be in the middle of all of them. <laughs> what about, do you listen to any podcasts? Oh goodness. Not, not lately. Not. So when I was at New York public radio, I listened to quite a few. Mm. Um, but I haven't had an opportunity to listen to any, any lately. I would say one podcast that I would recommend was through, um, WNYC. Mm. Uh, actually two, two I'd recommend. One of them was the, 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 oh goodness. It was the vanishing or the disappearing of, oh goodness. Um, it's okay. Hold on. I'll tell you, hold on, hold on. All right. Um, on. is it Harry? 
oh gosh, up his name. But um, the podcast was, I think it was six parts, and it talked about basically in the nineteen early nineteen hundreds, he was a black man, but he was passing for um, white. It's oh, the wow. vanishing of Harry Pace. Oh wow, that's the cool. vanishing of Harry Pace. Fascinating story. Um, but he basically, I, I won't give too much away. But the premise of it is that he's he was born a black man. He was a black man, and he had a couple of different careers. He was a lawyer, I believe. He was an insurance agent, um, and how over time, because of his privilege and because he was lighter skinned, how he was able to pass, and he basically just kind of disappeared. And then they fast forward. I think by episode three or four, they fast forward. And they talked to his descendants who oh, wow. are white and who had, and his uh, like great, great, great um, grandchildren and how growing up they had this picture. There was this picture of great, great, you know, grandfather so-and-so on the wall and how they just assumed and always thought that he was white. That's crazy. And how, and how the, their, their relatives and family, they began to do some research and how it came out that no, that was a black man. It's fascinating. It's very good. So I, that that I would recommend, The Vanishing of Harry Pace. The other podcast that I would recommend as well, kind of old, but it came out, um, I think it came out in 2021, also a WNYC um, podcast that was done in partnership with The Atlantic, I believe, mm-hmm. or, or I think it was through The Experiment. In any event, it was about um, um, Black Wall Street. Oh, wow. In Tulsa. Okay. Oh, oh like yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And they spoke to some of the survivors. That was also a very, um, a very good pl- podcast as well. That was done in partnership. I think it was the experiment, but it, it was done in partnership with the WNYC and the Atlantic. Um, but it was about um, Tulsa burning, Tulsa burning, and it was about the um, Black Wall Street. Yeah, that's it's it's that's like lost. And it history. came out in Juneteenth, I believe, in two thousand and twenty-one. It came out, but it was Blind Spot. The series is called Blind Spot, Tulsa Burning. So that's the other podcast that I would um, recommend also through uh, WNYC. Those are the two most recent ones that I had an opportunity to listen to. And I, I like interesting history and interesting information like that. I'm also a big movie buff. So I put, I put my go-to is usually the movies. So <laughs> I'm going to see uh, that movie Megan tomorrow. About the little, the, the I robot, haven't heard of the, it. The, the robot AI child that comes and murders everybody. Oh, oh I haven't heard it. Okay, so I can't say that I've heard of that one either. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you know how it is. It has, nothing, it has nothing to do with like it's it's total fake fiction. Um, last two movies I saw was the Avatar, and then we saw Wakanda Forever, which was fantastic. So those are the last two movies I saw. So. All right. Well, how about we usually ask what's your most memorable deal, but what's what's your most memorable hire? Or, yeah, do you, yeah. Yeah, that this, sounds exciting. Let's hear that. I, yeah, this, that, was, that was easy. So I was at the pharmaceutical company. And um, I wind up hiring this woman, this young woman, who really didn't have any experience in the pharmaceutical space. You know, she was looking to make a transition. She needed a job, single mom, raising her family. And... I had went to like a, a career fair mm. and, you know, all day you're seeing, they're coming in, you're doing interviews, you're meeting people on the spot. 
all day long. I was exhausted, but something about her stood out, even though she didn't have any, you know, experience in pharmaceutical or she had never been a rep before. I just, something about her stood out to me. And the more and more I, I spoke to her and she shared with me around her personal situation and where she was at and her education, et cetera. But the more and more I spoke with her, what became very clear to me was that she had the aptitude and the ability to learn. And when you, um, at least back then, when you were going to become a pharmaceutical sales rep, they put you through like a eight week training. It was like almost like a mini med school, mm. where you had to learn all the drugs or how all the drugs um, interact and contradict with each other. It's actually quite challenging. And there's actually, back then, there was um, a certain percentage of people that would just never make it. Like they would, we would hire them, you'd go through the training, but then they wouldn't be able to continue on to get, you know, their licenses or whatever they needed to um, be a rep. Mm. They just couldn't make it through. And because they're very focused on sales, like, you know, they might be good salespeople, but it's very, you know, pharmaceutical sales is extremely different. Right. And you really need to understand the body, the drugs, how the, the impact that that has on, you know, the human body, et cetera. So I took a chance on her, you know, put her through the interview process. And then the um, regional, you know, leader also saw something in her, took a chance to hire her. Long story short, she made it through. She didn't drop out. She got one of the highest scores on all the exams and the testing during the training period. And then afterwards, she, you know, I remember primarily because she sent me this beautiful, like, bouquet to my to the office and just wrote this very touching note that basically just said, you know, thank you. You took a chance on me. You saw something in me that I may have not saw in myself. And then just how, because, you know, we were able to do that, the impact that it was able to have and the benefit that it was able to have on her family. Yeah, that's awesome. And so that's why I always tell, um, and the reason why I tell that story is because if you're a recruiter, as a recruiter, it can be um, very challenging working with hiring leaders because they basically, they have these this list of like 10 things and all of them are like, no, I have to have it. So must have. And then when you look at the list, it's like, okay, so you basically want me to find a striped spotted uniform. <laughs> <laughs> like, Welcome to our world. Right. Like, you know, because they, they, they won't budge. And, they, and instead of trying to get them to think, okay, there's nice to haves, but, but based on the function of the job, here are the critical skills and the critical things that you must have that you really need to have. And those really can be three to five things. All these other things that you have here are nice to have. They're not must have. And if you can get a leader to, un to understand that and be really clear around what you have to have, because that translates to their ability to perform the job and the impact and the results that they were they're going to have from a performance standpoint versus this is teachable, right? Or this, they can get this, or this is a nice, these are nice to have, but leaders who can dis you know, differentiate that and be clear about that then they're willing, you you open up your candidate pool, particularly from a divert, this also has a major impact from a diversity standpoint as well in terms of how diverse right. the talent pool is. Because when you're so narrow and so specific, you're, you're minimizing and limiting the talent pool. And more often than not, it winds up being a talent pool that looks like you, whoever you, whatever you may look like. And it's not a diverse slate and it's not a diverse candidate pool. So when you do that, that opens it up. And then, and, and you can tap into a talent pool that you would have never, you know, thought about, 
right? And so, and then, but also it gives people an opportunity because at the end of the day, that's all what everybody wants. Everybody just wants an opportunity, a fair opportunity yeah. and a fair shot. So that's why I love that, that story, because I feel like the manager, myself, that that's what we did with that, you know, person. And she wound up being a very, you know, um, successful sales rep. That's a great who, example. Who was a woman of color, by the way. She was a woman of color. So she wanted to be a, a very successful person. That's a great that's example. so nice that you, yeah, I love that. Have you in the past found that there's something that you ask people or a way that you, you know, can decipher like, oh, this person is going to be a high potential candidate, even though they might not have all of the, you know, the myriad of must-haves? Yeah. So two things just in general that, um, whether I'm interviewing for the HR function, like so for something on my team or whether I'm interviewing for a manager from just a cultural standpoint around from whether or not they would align and fit to the culture of the organization. Two things that I always look for because I believe that these can't be taught is judgment. You know, how, um, you know, can they, do they exercise good judgment? You can't teach, you can't teach that. I, trust me, I've tried. You can't teach that, right? So someone that instinctually just has some level of good judgment, right? Sound judgment. The other thing I look for is someone's um, eagerness and and curiosity around learning or, or wanting to learn. And, and also someone that is willing to take, even though it's a measured risk or a calculated risk, Someone that's willing to take risk, make mistakes. That's what I mean. Basically, someone that's willing right. to make mistakes and learn from their mistakes so that they don't repeat it again. And then the fourth thing I'll add is accountability. I have found that through the years, it's hard to teach accountability as well. And I have also learned about myself that it's really hard for me to work with people who are not accountable. How do you vet this? Do you, do you have any certain questions or certain like... Uh strategy when you're interviewing people to, to vet these qualities out? Oh, absolutely. So I'll ask questions like, tell me a time where you made a, tell me a time where you took a risk or tell me a time where you made a mistake. What was the mistake and what did you learn from it? How did you grow from the mistake? Right. Um, tell me about a time where you and your leader or your manager were not aligned on something or you were working on a project or initiative and it went off the tracks. It went off the rails real quickly. Why did it go off the rails? And what did you do to either get it back on track or maybe you didn't get back on track and why not, right? I also I will ask a question around, um, oh goodness, um, give me an example of how you build relationships and also how you get buy-in. That's, that's, that's a big one. Tell me how you go about getting buy-in, particularly um, in the HR space, um, whether you're, you know, depending on what area of HR that you're, you're on, a lot of the times we're always having to sell or try to get buy-in and bring, you know, managers and leaders on board to something that we're trying to implement or something that we, we want to move forward with or a particular program or a particular system or particularly within the DEI space, right? DEI work is hard and not everybody's aligned and on the same page. They might say, oh yeah, it's important. I know it's the right thing to do, but the way they behave might be very different, right? And so it's those leaders that are going to be your most challenging. And so I always ask candidates, um, 
you know, for examples of where have you had to deal with someone that was challenging or that really wasn't on board and aligned? How did you get their buy-in? How did you get them on, on, on board, right? What were some of the tactics and the approach that you used that hopefully led to a successful outcome? So those through those types of questions, it hopefully gives me some insight around, can they take risk? Are they okay with making a, a calculated mistake? Do they learn from the mistake? Um, also accountability, because, you know, this element of accountability is somewhat, it's, it's somewhat tied to risk-taking and making mistakes. Because people who are accountable, when they make a mistake or when something goes wrong, they step up, they fix it, they learn from it, and they move on. They don't try to identify, well, it wasn't me, I didn't do it. And they try to, you know, they, they call themselves doing a postmortem or a debrief because they really just want to try to figure out who they can blame or whose fault it was because it wasn't theirs. I'm all for postmortems and debriefs, but the purpose of it should be to learn from it so that you don't repeat it, not to try to figure out who made the mistake and why, and then try to like penalize them for it. Nothing good comes from that. That's what Lisa does. (laughs) (laughs) So like- I wish I knew that question question before we, you know, we started working together. I'm kidding. What do you, how are you finding um, over the years that you've been doing this, like, the number of diversity candidates being hired, being considered. Um, and you seem like a lot of your, uh, your podcasts and books are, are focused on that. Like what, what efforts are being made and then how is it like the real world effect? It's been um, up and down. It's been a roller coaster ride. It's been inconsistent. There are times over the past, like uh, let's just say 10 years, there have been times where it's like, oh, the business case for diversity and everybody's focused on it. And, and actually, it started off as diversity. Diversity is just representation. How many numbers of people do you have from different demographics, women, ethnicity, disability, LGBTQ, whatever? It started off as just diversity. It has evolved to the equity, the inclusion, the belonging. So the whole concept of diversity has evolved to DEI, right? So that's that's first and foremost. But it's been a lot of roller coaster rides and up and downs. There's times when it's it's peak and it's a focus and it's a priority and it's a commitment and it comes from the top. And then there are times, unfortunately, when, and it usually happens when they have to make tough decisions where you move further away and you find that the DE&I has not been as much of a focus. So from a recruitment standpoint and a, and a recruiting uh, recruitment and talent acquisition standpoint, yes, more recently over the past like two years, ever since, you know, the unfortunate um, death of George Floyd is absolutely has been a peak, right? Everybody's mm. been very focused and committed to it, which I think is fantastic. Bring it. I'm all I'm here for all of that. Where I get disappointed and where I think organizations fall short is they they do what they're doing is very surface. It's not deep and it's not having a sustainable impact to move the needle. So I'll tell you what I what I mean. Some organizations ran out and they did a whole bunch of unconscious bias training, right? Great. And I'm not saying that your organization didn't do that, but what else? It can't be a one and done. And it can't just be we're only going to recruit a whole bunch of you know, Asian people, or we're only going to recruit a whole bunch of women, right? And it has to be multifaceted. It has to be broad. 
and it has to be in different areas. You have to look at your policies and your practices. Are they equitable or do they have an unintended in, negative impact on a demographic? You And then, yes, it's the, the diversity, the representation, the recruitment piece. Is your organization reflective of your business, the communities that you serve, or if you make products, where you sell your products, you know, et cetera. So you want to make, you want the representation, then you want to make sure that your practices and policies are equitable. Then you want to look at culture and culture is big and culture takes time. So you want to look at, that's where the inclusion and the belonging come into play, right? And so what is your culture? Are you creating a culture where people um, feel like, you know, they're included, right? They feel like they belong. Because if you are, then that translates to high levels of engagement. That translates to this feeling of pe that people have, I feel like I belong here. I feel like I fit in, even though I'm different. I'm different. Whether my experience and my background is different. Whether I present physically differently. You know, difference has a whole lot of layers. <laughs> so like, but you know, whichever, wherever you identify in whatever space you're in, because however, whatever makes that employee different, working at your organization, do they feel that they belong? Do they have that sense of belonging? And then that, that means that that will lead to higher levels of engagement. So I think right now we're at an interesting time. We're on a peak, we're at a high, but I do think I would encourage and, and, and recommend that empl employers, companies still need to do more. We need to go the step beyond the surface and just doing training and hiring but we really need to take it a step further and go deeper to make sure that we're moving the needle, we're having an impact, and that it's sustainable. Because some people would tell you, we're the same place we were 10 years ago. Mm. Okay, so why is that? Let's go back and look at what did we do? Why didn't we make enough progress? And then what are we going to do differently so that we have a better outcome, so that we have more impact? Wow. I can tell you, you've thought about that. We didn't prep you for that question. We didn't prep you. Right. For that. I'm very passionate about issues of DEI. Even though I am not a, a chief diversity officer or a DEI specialist, at all the work that I do, both my as part of my job, you know, my my um, profession, as well as outside of work, is has always has some kind of DEI element or lens to it. So, and that's just because I'm, that's something that, of course, being a woman of color and, and also my own experiences and things that have, I've experienced and have happened to me throughout my career, I am, you, you know, some might say I'm maybe a little hypersensitive to it and that's okay. Well, yeah. Awesome. Lisa, do you want to ask the last question? Well, I feel like it's so evident, but the last question is, how do you feel your your job or your role has an impact in the in the world and i feel like your whole being is impactful so i you are like one of my favorite host guests that we've ever had i love your yeah. passion around all of this stuff so you i feel call, like you guys should co-host you guys should host uh, host it together no 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 that's okay so we're not trying fun. to move you out of a job <laughs> i wish i got paid for this <laughs> <laughs> seriously <laughs> This is our passion project, but it's great. I mean, so, hmm. so I can answer that two ways. So within CPC, the current organization where I'm at, I've, like I said, I've only been there for five months. 
Um, but my focus is really around culture. So given that I wasn't there pre-pandemic, right? And given our, that we are a nonprofit and that the passion and the commitment that all employees have towards our mission, my focus is really in, in terms of the impact that I want to have is around culture, but specifically around making sure that in this new way of working, in this new hybrid environment, that people still have that sense of community, that we maintain that sense of commitment, that every employee feels they have what they need to, to thrive and grow and do good work in service of our mission and what we do for the communities that we serve within the affordable housing space. And doing that, you know, it's all about our people, right? So really looking at the culture as, you know, myself and the team from an HR standpoint, you know, looking at it that way. So whether that's diversity, whether that's career development, whether that's ensuring that our policies and practices are equitable, right? Um, whether that's from a recruitment standpoint, working with leaders, making sure that we're we're um, hiring the right type of skills and competencies for your organizations, right? So that it's in line with our strategy so that we can continue to grow our business. Now, the second answer, just in general, I think all HR professionals, HR leaders, and I use the term HR very loosely because I know some people out there are like, oh, well, I'm in diversity. I'm not in HR. That doesn't apply to me. When I say HR, I'm using that term very loose, broadly. So that includes diversity people. That includes change management people, you know, or, or every anything that kind of falls under that human capital type of umbrella. Mm -hmm. I'm a, I'm, that's when I say HR people, professionals, Recruiter. leaders, I'm including all of them, right? Yeah. I just know that there's some people out there like, oh, well, I'm, I'm not in HR. I don't sit in HR because they have a very traditional, narrow view of what the HR function is. I do not. So, so, but I do think um, for everyone that is in this function that does this line of work, thank you. <laughs> it is not easy. Um, it is quite challenging and hard. It is not fast. It takes time. And know that whatever area you're in, whatever level you're at, you have an impact. You are having an impact. Whether it's for the next person that comes along, you know, after you. The next the, so now going back to my story, that hiring leader, I feel like I had an impact on that hiring leader because now they have a different lens and a different view when they go to market to recruit talent, right? Yeah. There you go. So Definitely, I think all HR leaders and professionals are having an impact because it's all around people. It's all around people and it's all around work, how we work, the way we work, or some people call it the future of work, right? You know, it, when I remember reading an article or a study recently that said when they looked at the um, all the C-suite positions, which are the ones that were the most important or that kind of rose to the top and became the most critical, it was the CHRO or the chief people officer position or the CDO for some, for some, but it was that those types of positions that CEOs and other leaders really, you know, they realized and began to have a newfound appreciation for the work that we do, the importance of that job, how critical it is. And that, um, you know, to partner, to partner more and put more importance on it. Um, so, you know, and, and unfortunately, while the pandemic was a bad thing, but 
that's what I like to say that that's one of the blessings mm-hmm. that kind of came out of it for the HR field and the HR profession is that now I feel like at least some of us are more valued. You know, they understand they have more of an right. appreciation for what we do and they see um, the importance to not only the business, the bottom line, but to your most valuable asset, which is your people, your employees. Well, Monique, you're an amazing person. I'm really glad that you sat with Lisa on the <laughs> panel. I'm sure that panel they had to they had to have the hold up the sign of like, all right, time to time to wrap it up. They did. They uh, did. They did. <laughs> <laughs> Multiple Lisa times. Lisa had a lot of <laughs> things to say, as did Lauren and myself as well. So you know, once you get HR people in a room and they get to talking, you know, it's hard to get us to stop. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're amazing. I'd love to meet you in person sometime. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you.